Welcome to Grace Bible Fellowship Sermon Archive. Our prayer is that you will be abundantly blessed as you listen to this sermon delivered by Pastor Paul Francisco. Join us as we are pointed to the grace found in Jesus Christ alone, as recorded in God's holy word. So as we heard from um, our dear sister Sandra, as she read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, you can turn there in your own Bibles. Uh, I will spend most of all our time just right in the text itself. Uh, we will look at a couple different places as well, so I'll let you know when we get there. But as you make your way to the Word of God and as you ponder what the Lord would have us this morning, I want you to consider a history of the past. William Wilberforce. That might be a name that many of you might recognize, William Wilberforce. He was best and well-known for his lifelong commitment to justice for African slaves. And it is through his influence that John Newton, and which we'll actually hear that in our response today, gave birth to the well-known hymn, Amazing Grace. It was penned through the influence of William Wilberforce in John Newton's life. What you probably don't know is that William only wrote one book, which had nothing to do with slavery and was deeply profound and speaking to his theological convictions of justification in faith alone. He was particularly zealous for a balance between faith and works. He wrote in his journal on October, October 28th, 1787, at age 28, he wrote these words. He said, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of morals. You see, living in a broken and fallen world, we see the effects of sin to include slavery of the past. We also see things like child labor abuse or sex trafficking. However, God's design for humanity and the sanctity of life, we know that all have value and worth. And whatever, beloved, whatever situation you find yourselves in today when it comes to authority, it's important to remember that we are both to be obedient and servants of Christ. Let us pray one more time and ask the Spirit to empower his word. Lord, this profound letter penned by human hands but written by your Spirit have been profound for us. We see in verse 21 of chapter 5 this call to be submissive one another out of reverence for Christ. And then you have spoken to our hearts as husbands and wives and children now this morning of slaves and their masters. What is this word of submission? 
that is so important to you, that glorifies your name, that would speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, we pray that your spirit would come. Help us to have eyes to see and hearts to know the truth. Cause us not to be men and women who merely look into the mirror and it soon passes away. Help us to hold the royal command to love you and love others. Help us to have pure and undefiled religion to care for orphans and widows. Help us to not be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Help us, Lord, this morning, for we are a needy people in need of your grace. Come now. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So Paul has shown this great mystery in marriage in relation to Christ and the church, along with God's design for the family unit to be a representation of the gospel. He now wants to demonstrate to us how even if slaves, which were common in biblical times, if Christian, they also belong to the family of God. And so this morning, by way of giving you a roadmap of where I'm going, I want you to be able, if you like to write things down, but just listen to these four observations in obedience to the glory of God. Four observations. First, I want you to observe that obedience is to Christ. Secondly, obedience of the heart is what he requires. Thirdly, there is a reward of obedience. And lastly, obedience without partiality is what he requires of us. So as we look to God's word this morning in this first point in verse five, we see bond servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Again, in verse 21, it is the key to understanding this text. This idea of submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. In our context today, it speaks to obedience to those in positions of authority. And those who are under authority. Contextually, we begin with a Pivotal verse 21 in regards to mission, to submission. And he then moves on to wives, then husbands and children, now masters and their slaves. It was a natural progression from the household of God and how they should conduct themselves in view of Christ, walking in a manner worthy. If you are in Christ, it bleeds over into all aspects of life relationships to include those who found themselves as bond servants to masters. The call here is to obey as we would obey Christ. The Greek word here, doulos, literally means slave. 
and the Greco-Roman world in the time of biblical writings, slavery or indentured workers were very common, whether they were involuntarily or voluntarily. During the Roman Empire room reign, there had been computed a population of approximately 70 million people at its height, and approximately one million of them were slaves. This was the workforce of the times, and it included all types, domestic servants, manual laborers, doctors, teachers, administrators, and etc. Slaves were acquired by either being prisoners of war or, or settlement of a bad debt, sometimes inherited, or even perhaps being purchased. And all of this was completely acceptable in the day, and even in our own history. For those of us who live in a current state in which slavery has been abolished by law for one half, one and a half centuries, it is hard to conceive how the ownership of one human being by another can have been countenanced in this way. That's what John Stott tells us. But if God values all life and all have worth, then why did he let slavery even exist? Beloved, this morning, God is here to show that slavery was never part of his plan. It was fallen men that simply made it acceptable. In fact, God punished Israel in the book of Judges when they didn't complete the conquest given to them by driving out the Canaanites. If you were to turn to the book of Judges, chapter 1, beginning with verse 27, we can actually even see this here. And I'm not going to read this entire thing, but I'm going to read the last lines of each one of these. It says failure, you know, in the heading that a lot of our Bibles have is failure to complete the conquest. And it says this, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshain, its villages or Tanakh, and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor, and its villages or the inhabitants of Ibelim, and its villages or the inhabitants of Megadil. And its villages for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. And when Israel grew strong, they just put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And then in verse 30, at the very end, as the Count of Zebulon, it says, but became subject to forced labor. Once again, the Canaanites. And then at the end of verse 32, Concerning Asher, the Asherites lived among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Then Nephtali, at the end of verse 33, they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. And then nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Shemanah became subject to forced labor for them. Then we see amongst the Amorites, they pressed the people back into Dan. And then at the end of verse 35, it says, the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them and they became subject to forced labor. But look at what God says in chapter one of the book of Judges, right after their disobedience. 
Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgad to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt. And I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers, I said. I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your side. And their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. You see, beloved, slavery, even though we see it in the Bible, was never part of God's design. And there's only sinful men that made it acceptable and in time. And contextually in our text here, it was not like what we think about in our historical context and it was not necessarily a forced labor with whips and chains, although it could have very well had some of that happening. But even within the household of God, when Paul's addressing wives and husbands and children, it could have been very natural that even amongst Christian families, that some of them were slave owners. And some of them had indentured slaves or bond servants working amongst their family. So he saw fit to address them as those who are in Christ. He didn't outright call it evil or sinful and tell them to rebel against the, or masters to free them, but he saw fit to address their life in Christ. In fact, God punished Israel, because this slavery in itself is evil. But the effects of these sins still have implications for us today. And it has been a major problem even in our society. Uh, we have issues of racism, great division with acts of evil, evil and violence taking place throughout our country. But we also have issues with sex trafficking, women being exploited and abused for sexual sin. We have unjust child labor, the abuse of children to make a profit, all of which is a form of slavery, slavery to sin. And we as Christians need to be at the forefront of bringing a solution to it. Black, white, brown, young, old, the unborn, handicapped, all have value and worth in the eyes of God. And the gospel is what brings hope to the divide. The gospel sets us free. The gospel is what unites our differences. And we need to embrace the fact that God created us uniquely different, but all in his image. Our greatest slavery problem today is our sin. And the gospel is the solution to this problem. So Paul addresses himself to slaves of his time, exhorting them as accepted members of the Christian community. And he points them to Christ in their obedience. By doing so, they are obeying their masters in heaven, which gives them freedom from earthly rule over them. Paul's address to slaves is remarkable in that God takes a situation that may seem 
very bad or hopeless or where slaves were regarded just as earthly possessions. And he gives them in the exhortation and encouragement and appealing to their value and worth in the kingdom of God. He says, they are Christ. They are part of his family. And this is their freedom from earthly slavery in Christ. And this is why this word is translated actually into the word bondservant. It means to be a servant of love. In fact, beloved, I don't know if you know this, but in Old Testament terms, during the year of Jubilee, if we read about the times in like in Exodus and Deuteronomy, right? The Israelites were charged at this time to forgive all debts amongst Jews. Those to be set free from their service of paying off of debt to one another that they owed. But when a master treated their servants with such great care, some would willingly continue to serve, be in their service as a bondservant. In fact, as a sign and a symbol of that, bondservants would take a nail and they would insert it into their earlobe and it would actually be nailed on the, just as a representation to the master's home, on the side of their home. They were to be bonded to the home of their master. And it was done willingly out of love. And Paul says, obey in this way. A bondservant with fear and trembling, with sincerity of heart, as you would Christ. In other words, obey with a willing heart as you would the Lord. And that brings us to our second point of obedience of the heart. He says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man. Paul now appeals to the heart of obedience. Obedience is one thing, but obeying with a willing heart is another thing, Right? Borrowing from John Stott's commentary on this, he gives us five exhortations to hard obedience that I think is very helpful. In verse five, he tells us they would be respectful, obeying with fear and trembling. This means not cringing with servility before a human master, rather a reverent acknowledgement of the Lord Jesus in light of the authority given to their master. Secondly, he tells us that they would obey in singleness of heart. In verse 5, we see this, right? With integrity or wholeheartedness, with, without hypocrisy or ulterior motives. In verse 6, we're told they would be conscientious, not offering eye service or be men pleasers. This means not working only when the boss is watching in order to carry favor, but as servants of Christ, who is in any case watching at all times and is never deceived by shoddy work. Fourthly, we see their service would become willingly and cheerful from the heart in verse 6. Instead of being reluctant or grudgingly, this was a conscientiously being, be doing the will of God. 
Verse 7, we see that they would do it from the heart with a good will. Their heart and soul would be in it because they know that the Lord is also their judge. So if you're writing these things out, I'll give it back to you again. Five exhortations and a heart of obedience. First, they would be respectful, obeying with fear and trembling. Okay. Secondly, they would obey in the singleness of heart. Thirdly, they would be conscientious, not offering eye service or being men pleasers. Fourth, their service would be willing and cheerful from the heart. And fifth, they would do it from the heart with a good will. This was a radical worldview in the time of days, but essential conduct is part of the family of God. Not to please man or bow down to him, but to please God in our Christ-likeness. This kind of transformation the gospel does for us, Christ takes out the trash of our lives and he cleans it up, giving us hope for the future and peace for the here and now. In each of these four verses addressed to slaves, Jesus Christ is mentioned. Did you catch that? They are to be obedient as to Christ, verse 5. To behave as servants, literally slaves of Christ, in verse 6. To render service as to the Lord, which he's referring to as Christ, rather than men, verse 7. Knowing that they will receive good from the Lord, once again referring to Christ, verse 8. The Christ-like centeredness of this instruction is very striking. The slave's perspective has changed. His horizons have broadened. He has been liberated from the slavery of men pleasing into the freedom of serving Christ. His mundane tasks have been absorbed into a higher preoccupation, namely the will of God in verse 6, and the good pleasure of Christ. The same principle could be applied to Christian workers today and those who have authority over them. Think about this. If the work of Christian slaves could be transformed by doing it as to the Lord, the same is true of Christian today, Christian miners, factory workers, dustmen, road sweepers, public lavatory attendants. Once Christian slaves were clear in their minds that their primary responsibility was to serve the Lord Christ, their service to earthly masters would become exemplary, or they should at least. Consider this for a moment. The means we are to work to the glory of God, this means that we are to work to the glory of God in all things. Teaching children to obey to the glory of God. Being a soldier to the glory of God. Doing business to the glory of God. Being a student to the glory of God. Doing the work of a janitor to the glory of God. Changing a diaper to the glory of God. Consider these questions. 
How are you working to the glory of God? Is your motivation for work simply for money or do you see it as a means to bring honor to our Lord? Do you work so much to escape other aspects of your life? If we were to ask your coworkers about your work ethic, what would they say? If you told your coworker you were a Christian, would it be a surprise? Does your family see your work as a good thing? What are your attitudes towards doing the dishes? Remember that we are created for work. Just as Adam and Eve were given charge to work the garden, work is not just a means of provision, but it was given to us from God. It was a gift to us. And we do it not to please man or for our personal gain, but for our Lord. And this is not wasted. Mothers, picking up dirty clothes from the floor third time in the day, it's not a waste. Staying home and caring for your children, it's not a waste. Men, husbands, working that job that is hard when no one says thank you, it's not a waste. Answering to that administrator when you are struggling to get other work done, it's not a Please don't mistake this truth as a means to making work your God. Some of you may need to spend more time with your family than at work. Some of you may need to find a new kind of work that will not lead you into sin. The point is, do our work with a heart of obedience to God. And all this because we know that our Lord is our judge. And that no good work, whoever does it, slave or free, is ever left unrewarded by Christ. And that's what we see in our third point, our third observation. The the reward of obedience. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he is a bondservant or is free. This verse drives home the previous exhortations by giving the sense of responsibility and hope. The phrase itself is emphatic. Not that he shall receive the reward of the deed, but he shall receive the deed itself. Considered as a thing still living and returning on his head, both in the judgments of life and what we rightly call the last judgment of the great day. Our obedience is not meaningless. It's not meaningless. It's doing something. It's producing in you something. Every second in the path of your obedience is producing a particular glory that you will get because of that. Therefore, therefore, do not lose heart. 
Our obedience is good. Our obedience, our reverence to Christ comes with great reward. Our obedience is a fruit produced through an inward change. Our obedience is evidence and, and a testimony to the spiritual truth within us. Our obedience should be pointing towards Christ. Obedience to the Father. In the context of the workforce today, we can certainly be rewarded for good work by a job promotion or a pay raise or actual rewards or awards. But what if you didn't receive any of these things and find yourself in thankless work? Remember that your master in heaven is watching and nothing goes unnoticed. You may not receive earthly rewards for your service, but God desires that we work unto his glory. And perhaps your work ethic provides an opportunity to witness to the one you obey or a coworker or one you serve. What if, if this is the means by which God intends for you to share Christ? This gift, this reward is Christ. And we were saved that we would walk in love and do good works. What is work producing in you? A, what if this work is producing you a work of sanctification, yielding and molding you closer in the image of Christ? It is through the overflow of Christ's love for us that we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling with all humility, that we can be good students, good employees, or a good boss. You see, beloved, a slave in the eye of the law had no rights and therefore no responsibility or no hope. But Paul tells them, as a Christian, lift your thoughts to a place in which all, slave or free alike, may hear the blessing. Well done, good and faithful servant. The truth of the matter is that we're all slaves to something. We're either slaves to sin and death, or as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans, slaves to righteousness through Christ. In fact, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 6. We can read it for ourselves right here. Romans chapter 6, verse 12 through 19. And the Holy Spirit writes these words. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under a law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient to slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience, 
that leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. But at, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Our great reward, beloved saints, Christian, our great reward is Christ. Our heavenly reward of life is everlasting life, eternal life. And this reward frees us from our slavery to sin, giving you certainty that you are a child of God. So then we look to the fourth observation, obedience without partiality. It says, masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Paul lastly turns to masters, or in our context, those who find themselves in a position of authority over human life. Here's the duty of masters, those who are in authority. Act after the same manner. Be just to servants as you expect they should be to you. Show the like goodwill and concern for them. Be careful to approve yourselves to God. Be not tyrannical and overbearing. You have a master to obey. And you and they are but fellow servants in respect to Christ Jesus. If masters and servants would consider their duties to God and the account that they must shortly give to him, they would be more mindful of their duty to each other. And thus, families would be more orderly and happier. It matters. It matters in how we treat those in our care with part without partiality. Being fair and just. Rewarding proportionately. Treating others with dignity and love made in the image and likeness of God. Those that find themselves in positions of authority over others are called to a higher responsibility. Not just here on earth, but in heaven. We all answer to someone, don't we? Whether as an employee or a supervisor, a citizen or a governor, a parent or a child, Consider that you will give an account to your master. You're given the same charge as those under your authority, remembering whom has placed you in authority so that you might display the nature and character of God. And God says, stop threatening. 
Or treat those under your rule with dignity and the sanctity of life. Know that they were made in the image and likeness of God. This means don't use your position for personal gain. Know all authority comes from God. Even though we might not like that authority, we are subject to the ultimate authority of God through Christ. We will all give an account on judgment day. Who appoints our government and leaders? Yes, we might have a vote or an influence, but God is the ultimate decision maker in these matters. It doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican, Libertarian, or liberal, whatever. God is the one who's in control. One man is not going to save you. It's not going to solve all your problems. Kingdoms rise and fall. We should consider others in our decisions just as you would consider your wife and children. Making decisions that will benefit them for good. This is why we should be praying for our leaders and our government authorities. Our president and government, our law enforcement, our teachers, our church leaders, that they would make wise, God-honoring decisions for the benefit of all humanity. We may not be in the same times of ancient Rome, but don't think that these problems don't exist today. Although this is not ancient Rome and its dealings of cruelty, we in America just wrap it up in a prettier package. Don't pull the wool over your eyes and think that we're better than that time. We don't call it infant sacrifice. Instead, we just call it the removal of a fetus. Think about the, some of the decisions being made today. Because of all this violence and this issues of racism and, and so forth, we, we're seeing things like budgets to law enforcement being cut, which is impacting their direct ability to protect our communities. They are now allowing those who have or had COVID to go back into nursing homes. You want to hear a staggering statistic? We talk about this COVID all the time. Did you know 40% of the cases of all COVID are those in nursing homes? Yet we have to keep them safe. We, we can keep them safe in hospitals, but now we just allow them to go back into nursing homes to infect others where they're being dying daily. This is just a modern form, modern day form of euthanasia of our elderly. We all will give an account of our actions on Judgment Day. And as I mentioned in my prayer earlier, in James chapter 1, verse 27, and the care for orphans and widows is pure and undefiled religion. The apostles were to teach servants and masters their duties. In doing so, which evils would be lessened until slavery should be rooted out by the influence of Christianity. We are, as a servants, are to obey 
out of reverence for Christ, while leaders should exercise their authority with a servant-like leadership, just like husbands and wives, right? Both knowing who we ultimately serve, who gives all authority in heaven and on earth, working, obeying, living out the fruits of the Spirit to the glory of God. Obedience to the glory of God means that we would obey because of Christ with a heart of obedience to receive the crown of obedience in heaven, obeying the one who judges without partiality. Christian, this is a real struggle and you cannot obey in your own efforts. Remember, you have been given the means by the one who is able. Look to Christ and seek his grace. Seek his grace to be an advocate of unfair and unjust treatment of others. Live out a gospel-worthy life in the way you work or you exercise your authority. Friends, you may maybe see the injustice of this world and think, no one will take better care of me than myself. I have to get mine before they get me. Know that there is a true advocate before God who is here to set the captives free. The freedom, freedom or gains you seek will pass away. But the freedom from your sin is what he can do for you. And the freedom that, grant you, that can grant you internal Eternal freedom. Freedom from your restless soul to know love and peace. Turn to Christ and believe. If you're here today and have questions, come see me after service. I'll talk with you. Perhaps one of our elders, Elder John, Elder Russ, go ahead, raise your hand or one of maybe a friend who brought you here. Don't let the sun sit on what the Spirit of God is doing in your heart right now. Repent. Believe. As worship team comes, since I'm no match for God's Word, let us end our time with God's Word. Found in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Lord, we've all felt it. The tension of this world, the pulling of the darkness, the sin that has kept us captive. If we are in Christ, 
We know that we're no longer slaves to that. And if we are not of Christ, there is no hope apart from Christ. Help us this morning. Free us from the slavery of our sin. May we live and work for your glory and our joy. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Praise the Lord that his word is sufficient for our every need. Join us next time as we continue our study of God's infallible word. We would also love to have you join us in person at Grace Bible Fellowship. We meet together each Sunday from 9 a.m. to 9.50 a.m. for Connections Sunday School and from 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. for our worship service. We're located at 1385 Northwestern Drive on the west side of El Paso, along with our hosting sister church, Mission de Gracia. If you have any questions, you can dial 915-308-1208 or visit our website at www.gracebibleelpaso.org. We would love to see you this Sunday as GBF gathers to proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. Thank you.